Part One of The Dying Detective From His Last Bow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine. His Last Bow by Sir Arton Conan Doyle. The Dying Detective. Part One. Mrs. Hudson, the landlady of Sherlock Holmes, was a long-suffering woman. Not only was her first-floor flat invaded at all hours by throngs of singular and often undesirable characters, but her remarkable lodger showed an eccentricity and irregularity in his life which must have sorely tried her patience. His incredible untidiness his addiction to music at strange hours, his occasional revolver practice within doors, his weird and often malodorous scientific experiments, and the atmosphere of violence and danger which hung around him made him the very worst tenant in London. On the other hand, his payments were princely. I have no doubt that the house might have been purchased at the price which Holmes paid for his rooms during the years that I was with him. The landlady stood in the deepest awe of him, and never dared to interfere with him, however outrageous his proceedings might seem. She was fond of him, too, for he had a remarkable gentleness and courtesy in his dealings with women. He disliked and distrusted the sex, but he was always a chivalrous opponent. Knowing how genuine was her regard for him, I listened earnestly to her story when she came to my rooms in the second year of my married life and told me of the sad condition to which my poor friend was reduced. "'He is dying, Dr. Watson,' said she. "'For three days he has been sinking, and I doubt if he will last the day. He would not let me get a doctor. This morning when I saw his bones sticking out of his face and his great bright eyes looking at me, I could stand no more of it.' "'With your leave or without it, Mr. Holmes, I am going for a doctor this very hour,' said I. "'Let it be Watson, then,' said he. "'I wouldn't waste an hour in coming to him, sir, or you may not see him alive.' I was horrified, for I had heard nothing of his illness. I need not say that I rushed for my coat and my hat. As we drove back, I asked for the details. "'There is little I can tell you, sir.' He has been working at a case down at Rotherhees, in an alley near the river, and he has brought this illness back with him. He took to his bed on Wednesday afternoon and has never moved since. For these three days neither food nor drink has passed his lips. Good God! Why did you not call in a doctor? He wouldn't have it, sir. You know how masterful he is. I didn't dare to disobey him. But he's not long for his world, as you'll see for yourself the moment that you set eyes on him. He was indeed a deplorable spectacle. In the dim light of a foggy November day, the sick room was a gloomy spot. But it was that gaunt, wasted face staring at me from the bed, which sent a chill to my heart. His eyes had the brightness of fever. There was a hectic flush upon either cheek, and dark crusts clung to his lips. The thin hands upon the coverlet twitched incessantly. His voice was croaking and spasmodic. He lay listlessly, and as I entered the room, 
but the sight of me brought a gleam of recognition to his eyes. "'Well, Watson, we seem to have fallen upon evil days,' said he in a feeble voice, but with something of his old carelessness of manner. "'My dear fellow!' I cried, approaching him. "'Stand back, stand right back,' said he with the sharp imperiousness which I had associated only with moments of crisis. "'If you approach me, Watson, I shall order you out of the house.' "'But why?' "'Because it is my desire. Is that not enough?' "'Yes, Mrs. Hudson was right. He was more masterful than ever.' It was pitiful, however, to see his exhaustion. "'I only wish to help,' I explained. "'Exactly. You will help best by doing what you are told.' "'Certainly, Holmes.' He relaxed the austerity of his manner. "'You are not angry?' he asked, gasping for breath. "'Poor devil! How could I be angry when I saw him lying in such a plight before me? "'It's for your own sake, Watson,' he croaked. For my sake? I know what is the matter with me. It is a coolie disease from Sumatra, a thing that the Dutch know more about than we, though they have made little of it up to date. One thing only is certain, it is infallibly deadly, and it is horribly contagious. He spoke now with a feverish energy, the long hands twitching and yerking as he motioned me away. "'Contagious by touch, Watson. That's it, by touch. Keep your distance and all is well.' "'Good heavens, Holmes! Do you suppose that such a consideration weighs with me for an instant? It would not affect me in the case of a stranger. Do you imagine it would prevent me from doing my duty to so old a friend?' Again I advanced, but he repulsed me with a look of furious anger. "'If you will stand there, I will talk. If you do not—' You must leave the room. I have so deep a respect for the extraordinary qualities of Holmes that I have always deferred to his wishes, even when I least understood them. But now all my professional instincts were aroused. Let him be my master elsewhere. I at least was his in a sick room. Holmes, said I, you are not yourself. A thick man is but a child, and so I will treat you. Whether you like it or not, I will examine your symptoms and treat you for them. He looked at me with venomous eyes. If I am to have a doctor, whether I will or not, let me at least have someone in whom I have confidence, said he. Then you have none in me? In your friendship, certainly. But facts are facts, Watson, and after all, you are only a general practitioner with very limited experience and mediocre qualifications. It is painful to have to say these things, but you leave me no choice. I was bitterly hurt. Such a remark is unworthy of your homes. It shows me very clearly the state of your own nerves. But if you have no confidence in me, I would not intrude my services. Let me bring Sir Jasper Meek, or Penrose Fisher, or any of the best men in London. But someone you must have, and that is final. If you think that I am going to stand here and see you die without either helping you myself or bringing anyone else to help you, then you have mistaken your man. You mean well, Watson, 
said the sick man, with something between a sob and a groan. Shall I demonstrate your own ignorance? What do you know, pray, of Tanapuli fever? What do you know of the black Formosa corruption? I have never heard of either. There are many problems of disease, many strange pathological possibilities in the East, Watson. He paused after each sentence to collect his failing strength. I have learned so much during some recent researches which have a medico-criminal aspect. It was in the course of them that I contracted this complaint. You can do nothing. Possibly not, but I happen to know that Dr. Einstree, the greatest living authority upon tropical disease, is now in London. All remonstrance is useless, Holmes. I am going this instant to fetch him. I turned resolutely to the door. Never have I had such a shock. In an instant, with a tiger spring, the dying man had intercepted me. I heard the sharp snap of a twisted key. The next moment he had staggered back to his bed, exhausted and panting, after his one tremendous outflame of energy. "'You won't take the key from me by force, Watson. I've got you, my friend. Here you are, and here you will stay, until I will otherwise. But I'll humor you.' All this in little gasps, with terrible struggles from, for breath between. You've only my own good at heart. Of course, I know that very well. You shall have your way, but give me time to get my strength. Not now, Watson, not now. It's four o'clock. At six you can go. This is insanity, Holmes. Only two hours, Watson. I promise you will go at six. Are you content to wait? I seem to have no choice. None in the world, Watson. Thank you. I need no help in arranging the clothes. You will please keep your distance. Now, Watson, there is one other condition that I would make. You will seek help, not from the man you mention, but from the one that I choose. By all means. The first three sensible words that you have uttered since you entered this room, Watson. You will find some books over there. I am somewhat exhausted. I wonder how a battery feels when it pours electricity into a non-conductor. At six, Watson, we resume our conversation. But it was destined to be resumed long before that hour, and in circumstances which gave me a shock hardly second to that caused by his spring to the door. I had stood for some minutes looking at that silent figure in the bed. His face was almost covered by the clothes, and he appeared to be asleep. Then, unable to settle down to reading, I walked slowly round the room, examining the pictures of celebrated criminals with which every wall was adorned. Finally, in my aimless perambulation, I came to the mantelpiece. A litter of pipes, tobacco pouches, searings, pen knives, revolver cartridges, and other debris was scattered over it. In the midst of these was a small black and white ivory box with a sliding lid. It was a neat little thing, and I had stretched out my hand to examine it more closely, when it was a dreadful cry that he gave, a yell which might have been heard down the street. My skin went cold, and my hair bristled at that horrible scream. As I turned, I caught a glimpse of a convulsed face and frantic eyes. 
I stood paralyzed, with the little box in my hand. "'Put it down! Down! This instant, Watson! This instant, I say!' His head sank back upon the pillow, and he gave a deep sigh of relief as I replaced the box upon the mantelpiece. "'I hate to have my things touched, Watson. You know that I hate it. You fidged me beyond endurance. You, a doctor, you are enough to drive a patient into an asylum. Sit down, man, and let me have my rest.' The incident left a most unpleasant impression upon my mind. The violent and causeless excitement, followed by this brutality of speech, so far removed from his usual suavity, showed me how deep was the disorganization of his mind. Of all ruins, that of a noble mind is the most deplorable. I sat in silent dejection until the stipulated time had passed. He seemed to have been watching the clock as well as I, for it was hardly six before he began to talk with the same feverish animation as before. "'Now, Watson,' said he, "'have you any change in your pocket?' "'Yes.' "'Any silver?' "'A good deal.' "'How many half-crowns?' "'I have five. "'Ah, too few, too few. "'How very unfortunate, Watson. "'However, such as they are, "'you can put them in your watch-pocket, "'and all the rest of your money in your left trouser-pocket.' Thank you. It will balance you so much better like that. This was raving insanity. He shuddered and again made a sound between a cough and a sob. You will now light the gas, Watson, but you will be very careful that not for one instant shall it be more than half on. I implore you to be careful, Watson. Thank you. That is excellent. No, you need not draw the blind. Now you will have the kindness to place some letters and papers upon this table within my reach. Thank you. Now, some of that litter from the mantelpiece. Excellent, Watson. There is a sugar tongue there. Kindly raise that small ivory box with its assistance. Place it here among the papers. Good. You can now go and fetch Mr. Calverton Smith of 13 Loverbark Street. To tell the truth, my desire to fetch a doctor had somewhat weakened, for poor Holmes was so obviously delirious that it seemed dangerous to leave him. However, he was as eager now to consult the person named as he had been obstinate in refusing. I never heard the name, said I. Possibly not, my good Watson. It may surprise you to know that the man upon earth who is best versed in this disease is not a medical man but a planter. Mr. Culverton Smith is a well-known resident of Sumatra, no visiting London. An outbreak of the disease upon his plantation, which was distant from medical aid, caused him to study it himself, with some rather far-reaching consequences. He is a very methodical person, and I did not desire you to start before six, because I was well aware that you would not find him in his study. If you could persuade him to come here and give us the benefit of his unique experience of this disease, the investigation of which has been his dearest hobby, I cannot doubt that he could help me. I give Holmes's remarks as a consecutive whole, and will not attempt to indicate how they were interrupted by caspings for breath and those clutchings of his hands, which indicated the pain from which he was suffering. His appearance had changed for the worse during the few hours that I had been with him. Those hectic spots were more pronounced 
the eyes shone more brightly out of darkened hollows, and a cold sweat glimmered upon his brow. He still retained, however, the jaunty gallantry of his speech. To the last gasp he would always be the master. "'You will tell him exactly how you have left me,' said he. "'You will convey the very impression which is in your own mind, a dying man, a dying and delirious man. Indeed, I cannot think why the whole bed of the ocean is not one solid mass of oysters, so prolific the creatures seem. Ah, I am wondering. Strange how the brain controls the brain. What was I saying, Watson? My directions for Mr. Calverton Smith? Ah, yes, I remember. My life depends upon it. Pled with him, Watson. There is no good feeling between us. His nephew, Watson, I had suspicions of foul play, and I allowed him to see it. The boy died horribly. He has a grudge against me. You will soften him, Watson. Beg him, pray him, get him here by any means. He can save me. Only he. I will bring him in a cab if I have to carry him down to it. You will do nothing of the sort. You will persuade him to come, and then you will return in front of him. Make any excuse so as not to come with him. Don't forget, Watson, you won't fail me. You never did fail me. No doubt there are natural enemies which limit the increase of the creatures. You and I, Watson, we have done our part. Shall the world, then, be overrun by oysters? No, no, horrible. You'll convey all that is in your mind. I left him full of the image of this magnificent intellect babbling, like a foolish child. He had handed me the key, and with a happy thought I took it with me, lest he should lock himself in. Mrs. Hudson was waiting, trembling and weeping, in the passage. Behind me, as I passed from the flat, I heard Holmes' high, thin voice in some delirious chant. Below, as I stood whistling for a cab, a man came on me through the fog. "'How is Mr. Holmes, sir?' he asked. It was an old acquaintance. "'Inspector Morton of Scotland Yard, dressed in an official tweeds. "'He is very ill,' I answered. "'He looked at me in a most singular fashion. "'Had it not been too fiendish, I could have imagined "'that the gleam of the fanlight showed exultation in his face. "'I heard some rumour of it,' said he. "'The cab had driven up, and I left him. "'Loverburg Street proved to be a line of fine houses "'lying in the vague borderland between Notting Hill and Kensington.' The particular one at which my cabman pulled up had an air of smug and demure respectability in its old-fashioned iron railings, its massive folding door, and its shining brasswork. All was in keeping with a solemn butler, who appeared framed in the pink radiance of a tinted electric light behind him. "'Yes, Mr. Calverton Smith is in, Dr. Watson. Very good, sir. I will take up your card.' My humble name and title did not appear to impress Mr. Calverton Smith. Through the half-open door I heard a high, petulant, penetrating voice. "'Who is this person? What does he want? Dear me, Staples, how often have I said that I am not to be disturbed in my hours of study?' There came a gentle flow of soothing explanation from the butler. "'Well, I won't see him, Staples. I can't have my work interrupted like this. I am not at home. Say so.' Tell him to come in the morning if he really must see me. Again the gentle murmur. Well, well, give him that message. 
He can come in the morning, or he can stay away. My work must not be hindered. I thought of Holmes tossing upon his bed of sickness and counting the minutes, perhaps until I could bring help to him. It was not a time to stand upon ceremony. His life depended upon my promptness. Before the apologetic butler had delivered his message, I had pushed past him and was in the room. End of the Dying Detective Part 1